Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the radio show and podcast that tells the incredible story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode West Side Story versus The Music Man. Episodes 15 and 16 of Broadway Nation focused on the dawn of the golden age of Broadway, and we followed how it progressed and evolved from the 1940s into the 1950s, and we especially focused on how that groundbreaking revolutionary musical play format that was pioneered by Hammerstein and Rogers soon made it clear that the musical comedy would have to be reinvented as well. What exactly is the difference between a musical play and a musical comedy? I describe it like this. A musical play, even though it often includes a great deal of humor, is at heart principally endeavoring to tell a serious, dramatic, and emotional story that provides the audience with some insight into human life and human nature. Its main purpose is to make us feel something. On the other hand, a musical comedy, even though it might often have serious underlying themes, is most intent on amusing and delighting the audience. Its main purpose is to make us happy, to make us walk out of the theater with that buzzy, joyous feeling I call a musical comedy high. At the end of the 1950s, as the golden age reaches its pinnacle, many of the greatest musicals seem to blur the lines between those two forms. Every Broadway theater season during the 1950s gave us at least one great classic, enduring, golden age musical. And in a number of seasons, there were several of those. The decade was crowned by four legendary musicals that went head-to-head for the Best Musical Prize at the Tony Awards. In the 1957-58 season, it was West Side Story versus The Music Man, and the 1959-60 season brought Gypsy versus The Sound of Music. There are Broadway fans today who are still upset about which of those shows won and which of them, in their view, was robbed of the award. Together, I believe that these four shows exemplify the Golden Age Broadway musical at its zenith. Today, we'll discuss that first pairing, West Side Story and The Music Man. The story behind West Side Story begins in 1949, when Leonard Bernstein, Jerome Robbins, and Arthur Lawrence began talking about creating a modern musical version of Romeo and Juliet. 
At first, their idea was to use conflicts between Catholics and Jews to explain the violent animosity between the Capulets and Montagues, and their working title for that version was East Side Story. However, after much discussion, the idea was shelved because it all sounded too much like the 1922 play A.B.'s Irish Rose, a sentimental comedy about a secret marriage between a Jewish boy and an Irish Catholic girl. That play was enormously popular, but was despised by most critics, and its title became something of a punchline over the years. A lyric in the Rodgers and Hart song Manhattan expressed the feelings of many sophisticated theater makers who were rather disgruntled to see such a cheesy show become the longest-running play in history. The lyric goes, Our future babies will take to A.B.'s Irish Rose. I hope they'll live to see it close. In 1955, Bernstein and Robbins picked up the idea again when they were both working in Los Angeles on separate projects, and they met at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Deborah Jowett describes this meeting in her book Jerome Robbins, His Life, His Theater, His Dance. Dangling their legs in the pool, they gradually drifted to the subject of East Side Story and the current newspaper headlines about violence between juvenile gangs of Chicanos and Anglos. Eureka! Robbins readily agreed that ethnicity rather than religion should be the crux of the conflict, and that gangs rather than families the antagonists. In the end, the dramatic events of the play would be ripped from the headlines of New York's daily newspapers. One 1956 article reported that five youths displaying their prowess before a gang of 15 girls critically wounded a boy on the West Side last night, and a New York Times article published just months before the show's debut stated that four youths were arrested last night in the aftermath of a teenage gang fight in which one youngster was fatally stabbed. This, along with other news about juvenile delinquency and growing racial conflicts in America, convinced the authors to design the central conflict of their show as a turf war between the Sharks, a Puerto Rican gang, and the Jets, a motley mix of white, Polish, Italian, and Irish immigrant stock. When you're a Jet, you're a Jet, all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day. When you're a Jet, if the spit hits the fan, you got brothers around, you're a family man. You're never alone, you're never disconnected, you're home with your own. When company's expected, you're well protected. Then you are set with a capital J, which you'll never forget till they cart you away. When you're a jet, you stay As the Sharks point out in the show, the Jets, who are the children and grandchildren of actual immigrants, want the Puerto Ricans to go back where they came from, and of course where they came from was America. It was the growing accessibility and affordability of air travel that had led to what is now known as the Great Migration, the massive wave of Puerto Ricans that poured into New York City during the 1950s. And Puerto Ricans were the very first Latinx group to move to New York City in large numbers. The original plan was for Bernstein to write both the music and the lyrics himself, but it was soon clear that his classical conducting schedule would make this impossible to accomplish, and young Stephen Sondheim was brought on board to take over the lyrics. This completed a very queer creative team. All four of the principal creators of West Side Story were both Jewish and gay, and other queer creative team members included the set designer Oliver Smith, lighting designer Gene Rosenthal, and costume designer Irene Sheriff. 
For a brief while, the show seemed like it would have the unfortunate title of Gangway. But finally, the team landed on a variation of its original title. Now it would be called West Side Story. In her book titled Something's Coming, Something Good, West Side Story, and the American Imagination, author Misha Burson suggests that West Side Story's score is distinguished by its dance-driven urgency and its broad sonic palette of musical modes, from Wagnerian leitmotifs to Latin dance music to big band blues and American avant-garde music. It constantly shifts rhythms and keys and confounds the then-circumscribed categories of show music and long hair music with agility. However, even with all this incredible musical variety, the score, and in fact the entire show, has amazing unity. It all works and feels as if it came from one voice, one theatrical vision. A large part of this unity can be attributed to Bernstein's use of a much-talked-about musical device. I asked Broadway Nation's resident musical expert, Albert Evans, to explain just what that device is and how Bernstein built West Side Story's score around it. Bernstein's music for West Side Story is full of an unusual sound. It's a musical interval called the tritone. Now, an interval is the relationship between one note, one pitch, and another. And the notes of an interval can be played separately or together. Now, back in the Middle Ages, when Western musical harmony was in its infancy and still developing, there was a lot of talk in the church about which musical intervals were most pleasing to God. Turns out, God especially liked the perfect fourth. And the perfect fifth... But there's an interval between those, and it sounds like this. That nasty dissonance was considered so unstable, so offensive to heaven, that it was called Diabolus in Musica, the devil in music, the devil's tritone, and it was avoided at all cost. Its sinister reputation lasted for centuries. Of course, whatever is forbidden is just that much more tempting. And in the 19th century, composers who wanted to create a diabolic sound were quick to employ the wicked tritone. Like Saint-Saëns in his Danse Macabre, where the tritone represents the sound of the devil playing a fiddle next to the bed of a dying man. There are so many other examples, including any number of heavy metal bands like Black Sabbath. unstable, sinister tritone is at the heart of at least half the songs in West Side Story. One of the first themes we hear is a variation on a Jewish shofar call. 
The shofar is an ancient instrument fashioned out of a ram's horn. Its loud voice has been used for millennia to call the people to assemble or to prepare for war. It was a divine shofar call that brought the Israelites to the foot of Mount Sinai when Moses went up to receive Jehovah's commandments. And it's still an important part of Jewish ceremonies. Here's a typical shofar call. No tritone there, but Bernstein bent it to his purposes, altering a note to announce his story of an unstable world. From then on, the score is filled with tritones. The Jet Song. You're never alone. You're never disconnected. You're home with your own. When company's expected, you're well protected. Something's coming. Could be. Who knows? There's something due any day. I will know right away. Soon as it shows. It make them count. In the dance at the gym, the tritone begins to take on a gentler tone as a cha-cha. Which later becomes the hyper-romantic Maria. Maria, I've just met a girl named Maria. Then it turns sinister and edgy and cool. Mocking and sardonic in G. Officer Krupke. Dear kindly Sergeant Krupke, you gotta understand, it's just a... Bernstein, Robbins, Lawrence, and Sondheim were unsure how audiences would react to West Side Story. And at first, the response was mixed. Everything from raves to walkouts. A few critics called the music tuneless. Maybe their ears just weren't accustomed yet to the tritone. It took a few years, but by the time the movie came out in 1961, West Side Story had won over America and the world and was recognized as a landmark of the musical theater. It's also made the tritone a standard item in the musical theater composer's tool chest, sometimes almost a cliché. We hear it everywhere, in dozens of musicals, in Michael Jackson videos, even in the theme song from The Simpsons. Contrary to many reports, the original Broadway production of West Side Story was quite successful, and for the most part, it was critically acclaimed. But it was not universally embraced. The story was a bit too dark, abrasive, and downbeat for many people, 
and as Albert said, the score was too discordant for some audience members. Even so, the show was nominated for six Tony Awards, including Best Musical, and it received the Tony Awards for Best Choreography and Set Design. And it would go on to run a very respectable but not spectacular 732 performances. In many ways, the show, the staging, and the score were truly ahead of their time. However, in 1961, the film version of West Side Story would receive 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture. And that, along with its blockbuster soundtrack album, would turn West Side Story into one of the most beloved musicals of all time. Broadway Nation will be back right after this short break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factor's No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factor's menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Music Man is one of the only hit musicals in history to have its book, music, and lyrics all written by the same person, Meredith Wilson. And the show was based on his own experiences and situations from his childhood growing up in Mason City, Iowa, where his mother was a music teacher. The character of Winthrop is in many ways a stand-in for Wilson in his youth. He learned to play the flute and piccolo as a child, and in high school got plenty of experience as a member of the marching band. He would live at home, however, only up to the age of 17, when, with a battered piccolo in his pocket, he took a train to New York City and enrolled in the Damrosh Institute of Musical Art, which later became the Juilliard School of Music. 
I've asked Albert to fill us in on Wilson's musical career prior to The Music Man. Wilson was a highly trained musician. As a young man, he played in John Philip Sousa's concert band. He played first piccolo, so he's the one you would have heard on that virtuoso piccolo counterpoint in The Stars and Stripes Forever. Next, he joined the New York Philharmonic under the autocratic baton of Arturo Toscanini, the most famous conductor of the day. Then he became a music director for various radio networks, all of whom fielded their own symphony orchestras. He wrote movie scores for stars, and he became a celebrity himself by hosting and conducting his own radio shows. And if you've ever wondered where Harold Hill's style was born, it was during a labor strike. One radio program was scheduled during a musician's strike, so there was no accompaniment for the singing commercials. Hmm. He was undaunted. He wrote a rhythmically chanted, tuneless commercial, which was so well received that the stunt was repeated even after the musicians returned. Then in 1950, Frank Lesser and others encouraged him to turn a memoir about his childhood that he had written the previous year into a musical. It would take Wilson eight years and 30 revisions to complete the show, and he had to write more than 40 songs to arrive at the 19 that actually ended up in the musical. And as I mentioned, Meredith Wilson set the show in a fictional version of his hometown, Mason City, Iowa. When asked about how he had created the Music Man, he would always say, I didn't have to make anything up. All I had to do was remember. However, the plot of the Music Man is far from the wholesome, nostalgic, apple pie slice of Americana that it may appear to be at first glance. As the author Scott Miller writes, the script and score are expertly constructed, savagely funny, occasionally touching, and filled with wonderfully eccentric characters. Along the way, the show takes gleeful potshots at most of what Americans hold dear. Small-town generosity, family values, representative government, education, the 4th of July, Caucasian Americans' view of Native American culture, classical Western culture, and the great and often misplaced hope of so many parents that their child might have the talent to play a musical instrument. May I have your attention, please? Attention, please. I can deal with the troubled friends with a wave of my hand, this very hand. Please observe me if you will. I'm Professor Harold Hill, and I'm here to organize a River City Boys Band. Harold Hill arrives in River City with only one intention, to bilk the townspeople out of as much of their hard-earned cash as he can through his bogus scheme to create a boys' band, and then to skip town with the money before they find out it's a scam. And along the way, he will try to seduce Mary and the librarian just to make sure that she doesn't spill the beans. And yet the audience loves Harold Hill and roots for him to succeed from his first line and through to the final curtain. Why do we root for this scoundrel? because Meredith Wilson deftly establishes a town that prior to Harold Hill's arrival is close-minded, isolationist, dysfunctional, and emotionally shut down. As the author Raymond Knapp writes, 
It is full of separate individuals that are distrustful of one another and prone to gossip and scapegoating, and it is continually undermined by youthful rebellion, bickering leadership, and the perceived threat of outsiders. Knapp goes on to point out that every one of those traits was mirrored in the post-Korean War, Cold War, McCarthy era of the 1950s. Just like West Side Story, the music man reflected the issues of the day. We are drawn to Harold Hill because we immediately understand that he is the life force that River City in 1912 and America in 1957 desperately needs to save it from itself, and as Knapp contends, to goad it out of its lethargic smugness, its summer doldrums, into recognizing the energizing power of community-based feeling and activity. It's perhaps no coincidence that the Music Man's queer director, Morton DaCosta, was also the director of the previous year's big Broadway hit play, Anti-Mame, and he also directed the terrific film versions of both of those shows. The characters of Mame Dennis and Harold Hill share much of the same theatrical DNA. Both are vibrant, charismatic disruptors that advocate for art, freedom, and progressive values, and vanquish the conservative, conformist, bourgeois beliefs that stand in their path. Mame's famous battle cry is live, live, live. Life is a banquet and most poor bastards are starving to death. And in a similar vein, Harold Hill tells Marion, oh my dear little librarian, you pile up enough tomorrows and you'll find you're left with nothing but a lot of empty yesterdays. One of the reasons this show is so effective is that every one of its story problems and complications is solved through music. At every turn, Harold Hill uses the power of music to galvanize River City into becoming a genuine community. And to again quote Scott Miller, the result is a real American myth and one that George M. Cohan would be very proud of. Here again is Albert Evans with a look at Meredith Wilson's brilliant structure and conception for the score for The Music Man. In 1957, the Tony Award for Best Score went to The Music Man instead of the season's other outstanding musical, West Side Story. And sometimes people are surprised by that. They have the impression that The Music Man score is a simple affair made up of simple tunes. But anyone who has ever music directed The Music Man knows that that's far from from the truth. Yes, Meredith Wilson's score is accessible in the best sense of the word. No one in the audience will be baffled or turned off by its complexity or strangeness. From his years as a radio music director, Wilson knew exactly how to reach the public, to tickle their ear, and he knew just how far he could indulge and disguise, if necessary, his own taste and training for musical trickery. All that conservatory stuff is under the hood, so to speak, but let's take a moment to lift that hood up and take a peek at all the pistons and gears. From the very first number, Meredith Wilson surprises us. It's chanted, not sung, by a railroad car full of traveling salesmen. And without sound effects, the salesman's words evoke the sound of a train, starting up slowly, picking up speed, rolling along the tracks, then breaking and grinding to a halt. Some people have called this the first rap song, but rap is built on rhymes, and this piece has none. Let's listen. River City, next station stop. River City, next. Cash! For the merchandise, cash for the button hooks, cash for the cotton goods, cash for the hard goods, cash for the fancy goods, cash for the soft goods, cash for the noggins and the pigeons and the frickins, cash for the hogshead cask and jemmy jar, cash for the crackers and the pickles and the flypaper. Look, what do you talk? What do you talk? What do you talk? What do you talk? What do you get it? What do you talk? You can talk 
you can talk, you can bicker, you can talk, you can bicker, 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 you can talk, you can talk, you can talk, 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 bicker, 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 you can talk all you want, but it's different than it was. No, it ain't, no, it ain't, but you gotta know the territory. That's just one of the musical surprises in this wonderful score. The underlying theme of The Music Man is that there is music everywhere if you just open your heart to it. There were bells on the hill, but I never heard them ringing till there was you. Meredith's masterstroke is sometimes unnoticed by the audience, although they surely feel it subliminally. When we first meet Marion, the lonely town librarian, she sings a beautiful Wish on a Star song, Good Night, My Someone. In the very next scene, Harold Hill is working his Pied Piper magic on the townspeople with an intoxicating march, 76 trombones. 76 trombones led the big parade with 110 cornets close at hand. They were followed by rows and rows of the finest virtuosos, the green of every famous band. Marion had taken an instant dislike to Professor Harold Hill, but these two songs tell us that they will complete each other. How? They sing the same tune. Good night, my someone. Good night, my love. Seventy-six trombones led the big parade. And not just those two phrases, the complete songs. One, a tender waltz, and the other, a rousing march. They're the same. True love can be whispered from heart to heart. There were 50 mounted cannon in the battery. Amazing. And both songs are perfect. Finally, I want to talk a bit about Wilson's masterful counterpoint. Now, counterpoint is writing two independent musical lines or phrases or whole songs that can be sung together without sounding, well, awful. There are some wonderful double songs in The Music Man. Pick a Little, Talk a Little, the women's gossiping song, works in counterpoint with the barbershop quartet's Good Night Ladies. There was even one double song that didn't make it into the show. Harold's The Sadder But Wiser Girl was written to be sung with Marion's My White Night as the Act One finale, but it was replaced by the more exciting Wells Fargo Wagon. The double song most people remember is the combination of Lie to Rose, and Will I Ever Tell You. Marion is beginning to realize she loves Harold, but knows that he'll soon be off to the next town. And so she's sort of musing at home as the barbershop quartet strolls through the town singing Lie to Rose. Lie to Rose, I'm home again, Rose, to get the sun back in the sky. Lie to Rose. About a thousand kisses shy. 
daydreaming, Marion sings, Will I Ever Tell You? Then in one of those great moments of musical theater magic, both songs blend together. David, thank you. And if you don't have any more questions, I'm going to go listen to The Music Man. Thank you, Albert. That was wonderful. The Music Man became a massive hit, winning five Tony Awards, including Best Musical, and running for 1,375 performances. The original cast album received the first Grammy Award ever for Best Musical Theater Album, and that recording spent 245 weeks on the Billboard charts. West Side Story is clearly a musical play, and in fact, it's one of the only musical tragedies. Still, the feeling of the show is incredibly vibrant and kinetic because Jerome Robbins was able to tell so much of the story through dynamic, breathtaking dance, and as a result, West Side Story has one of the shortest, tersest scripts in musical theater history. And following Shakespeare's lead, the authors make the tragedy of West Side Story even deeper by including large measures of irreverent and insightful comic relief. On the other hand, The Music Man is clearly a musical comedy, but one with an involving story, complex characters, and important underlying themes of its own. And if you look past the surface of these shows, you find that they actually have a lot in common. Both are about communities that are in crisis. Both involve issues of prejudice and intolerance. And as we have seen, both reflect specific social issues and problems of the 1950s. Both of them feature a dance at the gym where star-crossed young lovers come together. And although it's only one of several subplots, The Music Man features its own Romeo and Juliet story. The dancing juveniles, the mayor's daughter Zanita, and the tough young hoodlum and gang leader Tommy Gillis. In fact, in the dance section of Mary and the Librarian, they are discovered reading a large copy of Romeo and Juliet. At least they do that in the movie, which I assume is an echo of Anna White's original Broadway staging. And later, in response to her father's forbidding them to see one another, Zanita says, Papa, please, it's Capulets like you who make blood in the marketplace, ye gods. So the allusion to Romeo and Juliet couldn't be more explicit. And it is cultural or perhaps even racial prejudice that is the reason the mayor so disapproves of Tommy. His last name is Gilas, the only non-Anglo-Saxon character name in the show. 
and Mayor Shin brands Tommy as a wild kid and says that Tommy's father is one of them day laborers that lives south of town. In the film, the malaprop-prone mayor even refers to him as being Nithalanian. Presumably he means Lithuanian. Again, the issue is immigrants that won't stay where they belong. Even today, we associate day laborers with immigrants. Again, Wilson just had to remember, a major immigration of Eastern Europeans to Northern Iowa occurred between 1910 and 1920, and the countries they came from included Serbia, Yugoslavia, Lithuania, and Croatia. And indeed, Gilas is a common surname in that part of the world. As I related in my first two episodes, even as late as 1912, when this show is set, immigrants from Eastern Europe were not considered to be entirely white. Harold Hill's belief in Tommy, the investment of time, attention, and trust that he gives to him, is exactly what the juvenile delinquents of West Side Story will never get. Yes, Tommy and Zanita's entire story takes up probably less than 15 minutes of stage time, and even within that, much of their story is told through dance. And unfortunately, in many productions, Tommy is played by a not-very-dangerous-seeming young dancer, which dilutes the impact of the storyline. But still, it is clearly there in the writing. The other strong prejudice in the show is against Marion. She's the victim of vicious, small-minded gossip, and she is ostracized from the community because of her advocacy for art, music, and literature. Both worlds, the Upper West Side of West Side Story and River City, demand conformity from their inhabitants. And finally, both shows have complex musical scores that include a great deal of foreshadowing and cross-referencing. Chord progressions and melodic motifs from one song are echoed or hidden in another, and all of this creates a sense of unified design and cohesion. By the show's final curtains, the town of River City has been healed. Love and music have triumphed. However, in West Side Story, hate and prejudice have prevailed, and the community has been devastated, with only a small hope that out of this tragedy, some good may come. So which show should have won the 1958 Tony Award for Best Musical? For me, it's a toss-up. The two shows are equally brilliant, equally moving, and equally deserving of their classic status. Without a doubt, the 1957-58 Broadway season produced two of the greatest shows of all time. And I hope and I pray that in the not-too-distant future, we will again have the chance to see them both back on Broadway simultaneously. In the next episode, we'll focus on the two contenders for the 1960 Tony Award for Best Musical, Gypsy and The Sound of Music. There were bells on a hill, but I never heard them no, I never heard them at all Till there was you Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong, with additional writing by the brilliant Albert Evans. If you enjoy this podcast, please take the time to rate and review Broadway Nation on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really is helpful in spreading the word about Broadway Nation to everyone who might be interested. Special thanks to KVSH 101.9 FM, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and especially to everyone at the Broadway Podcast Network.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.